Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Think Orange Podcast. A podcast with ideas and conversations to help you influence the next generation. Here are your hosts, Dave Adamson and Ashley Bohens. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Think Orange Podcast, episode 68. My name is Dave. I am your host, and I am flying solo in the Think Orange Podcast bunker today. Well, I'm sitting in here solo, but today, pressing his little face up against the portal, is not K-Daddy, which we all normally have. This is the OG, the original. Kevin Jennings is producing this episode. Kevin, can you hear me out there? Hey, my friend. Happy to be here. It's so good to have you. Have, it's been so long since you've been on. I know you all you all kick me off. and uh, you Come all, on. You, you like my dad better. I yes. Know, I, I know you do. Hey, see, there's a the thing. Not a lot of people listening to this would know that our producer, K-Daddy, is actually your dad. Yeah, he is. He taught me how to do everything I know about audio recording and um, producing music and audio wow. stuff. So, yeah. So, I mean... He deserves to be here, but I'm happy to be have my my seat is still warm. I'm happy to be back. <laughs> well, see, I incorrectly introduced you. I said you were the OG. Well, I am but, the, I'm the OG on this podcast. Well, but he's the original Kevin Jennings. Yeah, You're but I'm the, the I'm the OG producer though. Uh, correct. There it is. How about that? He's the original Kevin Jennings. He is. I, I bear his name, so he gets to claim a lot of rights. <laughs> well, mate, it is so great to have you in here producing this episode because this episode is one I am really looking forward to. We're going to be talking about something today that is extremely important to everyone who's listening to this podcast. See, here's the deal. I know a lot of us who uh, in student ministry, whether it's middle school or whether it's high school, we all know this fact. We can pour four, five, six years into our students and then when they reach college age and they leave, research studies tell us that a lot of them walk away from their faith within 6 to 12 months. Now, that's a stat that none of us are happy with, but we don't know what to do about it. Well, in this episode, we're going to give you some practical tips because Ash, our normal co-host, did this fantastic interview with Dr. Stephen Argue. Now, Steve is an applied research strategist at Fuller Youth Institute, and he's a faculty member at Fuller Seminary, where he teaches in the Youth, Family, and Culture Program. Now, Stephen actually works alongside Cara Powell. Some of you may remember her from previous episodes of this podcast, but Steve is not only a genius about all things young adult. He's actually a really cool guy, super smart, super theological, with years and years and years of practical ministry experience dealing with young adults. And what he's going to be talking about today is going to rock your world. He gives super practical tips and advice. And I don't want to give away everything that he says, but here's a little hint. The answer to this burning question is not having your church hire a new young adult pastor. So break out your notebooks because you will want to take notes as you hear from Stephen argue a little bit later on. And then we also have a panel clip for you where we're going to hear from Jared Hurd and Chuck Bomar. Now, Jared Hurd is the lead pastor of The Church at Rancho Bernardo in San Diego, California. He's the former teaching pastor at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa. Is that right? I think you're right, sir. Costa Mesa. Costa Mesa. Did I pronounce that right, Kevin? I mean, you know, I was going to say Costa Mesa. All right. As well as, <laughs> I just want to make sure we're, I get We're it wrong. wrong together. Exactly. As well as, he's he's also the former creative director at XP3, the student ministry curriculum here at Orange. Now, Chuck served nine years at Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley, California, before he moved to Portland, Oregon to plant another church. He's also authored over a dozen small group resources and nine books, with the most recent being 
serving local church schools. So we have plenty of information coming your way with some absolute experts. You're going to get a lot out of this episode that is proudly brought to you by XP3 Curriculum. Now, XP3 is a fully customizable year-round curriculum from Orange students. Kevin, do you know anything about this curriculum? Actually, I do. I know that it's designed. I know you do. That's I do. why I brought you in. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share some things. I know if <laughs> Ashley was here, she would want me to do a great job of this. So I'm going to do the best I can. I know XP3 <laughs> is designed to be both theologically sound and developmentally appropriate. Right. And so we want to make sure that yeah. our students and no matter what their age, we bring the message to them in a way that they can understand it and apply it to their life. And it, it includes all the series graphics, parent yeah. emails, social media plans, background music playlist. Now, this is the thing that I love most about it, because sometimes we think it's just scripts that That's people right. need to read on stage. But this is everything like this is this is church in a box, really. Right. Indeed, it is. It is designed to make sure that you as leader can do what only you can do. And that's invest in the relationships with your students, your volunteers and your parents. I we love can, that. All the graphic stuff, all the teaching videos, whatever you might need, allow us to help make Sunday a little bit easier so that you can be more invested in the kids instead of the programming. Now, Kevin, I don't know if you know this, but if anybody listening to this podcast right now wants to try XP3 for free, for free, that's good enough as it is, but if you want to try it right now, we're also going to throw in a digital copy of It's Just a Phase, the popular book by Reggie Joyner and Kristen Ivey. You know, I, had, I got a chance to actually work on this book. Of course uh, you did, because you're I, a genius. Well, they're very kind to let me be a part of it and to, to market this book. And the one thing I'll say to anyone who's listening, this book is really years and years of research coming together from the team at Orange where they where they mapped out and, and really, I would say, simplified, but mm. also kind of demystified what the developmental process is for a child over their life cycle and what your church can strategically do at each phase yeah. to engage that child, engage that student and their family. So everything we've done around how to engage kids mm. at a different, at different age, it, all of our research is kind of showing you why we do what we do within XP3 or 252 right. or any of our curriculums. And I think it's the perfect book for anybody. So even if you don't even want the curriculum, yeah. you need the book. Yeah, just, so, just try it out just for try free it. anyway, just to get the book, because the book is like the recipe book it is. for church leaders who are in family ministry. Am I right? 100% correct. It is like that. When something's going on and you want to figure something out, just go open to the age-appropriate chapter and there it is all laid out for you indeed it is it, it, I mean, and it's very visual too you have some fantastic graphics you can use to print and look at and make sure maybe you can sh it's very easy to share with your team yeah so why don't you just try out xp3 just to get the book and if you want to do that just go to www.tryxp3free.com i'm going to say that again i don't know kevin do we need the www dots anymore you know what i did that in your notes just to be transparent <laughs> because sometimes when we say phrases like try yeah. like like, you're like, well, was that a part of the URL or not? So sometimes I just do that just to make sure. I get it. It's just, it's just for you and I. Well, no, it's actually, it's for the audience as well. Let's, you're serving the audience right now, Kevin, and I appreciate that. So I here, do my best. Here it is again, www.tryxp3free.com. Tryxp3free.com. So go and check it out. Hey, without any further ado, we're going to throw it straight over now to Jared Hurd and Chuck Bomar. Barna, David Kinnaman uh, came out with some research about a year ago uh, about six reasons why people leave the church. And uh, I think these are some of the issues that are at play when we talk about this and how do we translate the gospel? How do we talk about Jesus uh, to a generation that's 
hurt it, jaded with it, uh, or potentially walking away from their faith in droves? How do we begin to communicate? Or, or maybe a, a bigger question is, what are some things that they feel? What are some things that they sense? And so I wanted to just kind of walk through very briefly some of these six reasons why um, seniors graduate high school and say from their own mouth why they leave the church. So here's just some basic observations today. Uh, church is seen as overprotective. That when you ask a high school senior, uh, when you sit down with a college student and say, why did you grow up in church and why did ultimately it not work for you? That the reasons that they give is not because they had theological issues with the resurrection or not because they sat down and read science so in detail that they realized that the creation account could not be true. Uh, that oftentimes they saw an environment of legalism. Uh, and, and these are just observations. These aren't even necessarily things that we, we want to you know, unpack in great detail today, but they're just sort of observations about why things are the way they are. Uh, that they see, see church as an overprotective environment. One of the things that I've noticed in, in traveling and talking to high school kids for the last 10 years or so is that oftentimes we expect that the kids in our youth groups are, are a lot like Tim Tebow, that the goal is to be more like Tim Tebow, uh, that, that that's sort of the gold star. Because Tim Tebow is currently the Christian Pope, wouldn't you agree? And uh, Tim Tebow and Mark Burnett are the Christian popes. Uh, but, but for us, you, you recognize more and more that there are kids in, in the room that uh, look more like Josh Hamilton. You know who Josh Hamilton is? Any Texas Ranger fans? Or no, uh, sorry, Angels. Uh, that, I know, bad mistake. That, that they have long histories of brokenness. And when the goal is to look a certain way, act a certain way, that we sort of present a picture and say, this is what the goal is. You're supposed to have the right morals, you're supposed to have the right behavior, and that a lot of them show up in the walls of our church, and they, they already are way beneath the standard of where they should be. And so they see the environments that we create as, as overprotective, that uh, they're environments that don't allow them to fail, and for many of them, they already have uh, failed, failed dramatically in their life or feel like they have morally. Uh, church is antagonistic to science. Uh, one of the things that when you talk to high school seniors or college students, and, and Chuck, uh, you can speak it into this at all at any point you want, um, that they feel what, what we call a pastor versus professor dilemma. That they go off to colleges and they hear truths about economics or philosophy or the way government or science works. And all of a sudden they get put in this, what I would say is a false dichotomy of, wait a minute, is it my pastor or is it my professor? Who, who's right? Uh, that they see the church that they grew up in as, as an environment that is hostile to the truths that they learn in, in education or learn in the schools. Can I say one thing on that? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and that is this, is that sometimes I think we... Uh, what I've noticed with a lot of college students is that that packet of information we gave them of Christ's fulfillment of prophecies just doesn't prepare them for the intellectual challenges that they're going to face in college. And it's not, not necessarily through professors. It's also just through relationship with peers. All those questions are being asked. And so one thing I would say in that is this, that we need to be make sure that we're intellectually honest. Because a lot of times in the church, what we'll do is, is we'll use science if it helps us prove our point. And then we boo-hoo silence if it like supposedly contradicts our doctrine. And so we'll, we'll like uphold it one time what science says, and this, this archaeologist said this, and we'll like hold it up is because it supports us. And then we'll boo-hoo silence and kind of belittle it if it violates it. And so I just think we need to be, the issue's not science. Yeah, I think too, how do you hold those in tension? 
So you have the 16-year-old the or the 14-year-old or the 20-year-old at, at your church that's really curious and reading you know, deep Stephen Hawking books and asking a lot of questions about how the world works. And for them to be in the environments that we create within the walls of our church where they feel like because they're even reading those books or asking those kind of questions, we're hostile towards that. Uh, I think to create environments where you can hold those two in tension and that they begin to see that asking questions about science uh, is not necessarily against, over and against their faith, that actually it can support it and lead to, to their own sense of wonder about who God is. And that you may not have the answers to that, and you may not know how that works. And admitting that they may be smarter. I mean, have you ever had those conversations with high school kids where you're like, whoa, you're way smarter than me. <laughs> and uh, how do you allow for that to, to flourish and create an environment where that's safe? Maybe find the, the local uh, scientist in your congregation or someone who, who reads the same kind of things that can help create, uh, not hostility towards that, but, but really co-opt uh, with, that, with that kid. So uh, they think church is shallow. Uh, Chuck, any, any thoughts there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of times we do, we, we really do try to, uh, we have this knack for trying to supply like very simplistic answers to very complex questions. And I do think that that just, they see right through that. Yeah. You know, we, we have the same kind of rhetoric, rhetoric and answers to questions to about whatever, dinosaurs or whatever. And that's not really a complex question, but yeah. we just try to oversimplify it. And I think it just yeah. gets old. Yeah. And, and I would add to that. I think for a lot of kids, they come through our youth ministries and we taught them how to die, uh, but we never really taught them how to live. Uh, we taught them how to pray a prayer and, and, and get out of here, but we never really taught them what to do in the 80 years or 40 years or however long they're in this world and uh, how to engage with uh, the world around them, how to engage with God, how to engage in relationship. And, uh, and, and I think where churches are really winning or where youth ministries are really winning with high school students or college age individuals are environments where they're really focused on teaching people not just how to, how to evacuate, but really how to live and how to be here in the world and what it looks like to be a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ in your office, in your school, in a secular quote-unquote setting, and how do you really focus on life uh, in the here and now and not just later? Yeah, when we let them into our... And when, when we let them into our life... You've got to clap there, Jerry. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. When, when we let them into our life, we realize that they... Uh, it's just not that simple. Right. There's just... There's not a lot of simple answers, you know? Right. Uh, it's just... There's a lot of questions, and so... Yeah. No, that's a... Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on these, because I think for some of you, you're like, yeah, yeah, we know this. Um, but the church's attitude towards sexuality is simplistic and judgmental. Um, and I... Obviously, we could talk about that all day, or Chuck could, but um, we, we, uh, one of the things I've noticed in talking with high school students is that, especially as a youth communicator or as high school pastors, maybe you've noticed this, that we stand in front of kids a lot and we talk about why you shouldn't have sex, and statistically, they already have. And when you stand up in in front of a group of high school students or or even middle school students and you start saying, you know, here's why you shouldn't have sex, here's why we, you know, tell you not to have sex, um, for for a lot of them, they feel like, well, basically, you're telling me sort of the meta message through that is if I've had it once, I might as well have had it a thousand times because I already got my scarlet letter to walk around the church with because I've already had sex. 
And as a high school pastor, as a middle school pastor, um, I think it's really important that you raise up volunteers or when you stand on stages and talk about sex, you always couch it or posture it with the idea, obviously, of grace, but saying, you know, for a lot of you, you've already had um, sex. You've already, you know, gone further than you wish you would have. And, and to create an environment where they understand that just because you had sex once doesn't mean, you know, you, you're kind of marked out of God's will, uh, that, that God is a God of, of where plan B is plan A still. And how do you create an environment where kids that obviously have experienced sexually way more than um, my generation did or, or our generation um, can begin to feel uh, Christ's freedom when they've already violated um, s- some some morals and some some rules. So and we can't we can't switch slides until we we address the homosexuality issue, the same sex attraction as well, because obviously that's huge and and um, kids are really I think confused because they know some really cool people. Yeah, and and then we come across as judgmental and condemning, <clears throat> and. First off, we don't, 1 Corinthians 5, we don't have a right to judge anybody that's not a believer, first right. off. Um, and so we need to be very careful with that. But even as elders in, our, in my church, um, we're thinking through, okay, what if two moms come in? What do we do? How do we handle that? And how, what do we need to teach our people to be able to navigate that well? And let's just say marriage, same-sex marriage, is in fact legalized. Do two people come in and do we encourage them to divorce? You know, there's just some, and, and, you know, maybe you say, well, yes, and maybe that's the right answer. But at the same time, but how do you navigate that with the gospel in mind and helping people understand that with grace, mercy, but not compromising, right? Yeah. It's just not simple anymore. Yeah. And so we, we can't, we have to be careful. No, I think it's a great way to say it, that when you present it as black and white, done, in, out, crystal clear answer to every problem. And when you say things like, well, the Bible says, and then you have sort of a curious 16-year-old, they go, well, I, I didn't read it that way, you know, and, and I see some, some other things. And to make sure that it's postured as sort of a gray, murky um, issue, because in a lot of ways it is. How do, how do you navigate these issues where there's not a one-size-fits-all answer um, to these types of questions? And when you come across a black and white, it, it becomes uh, very judgmental uh, to, to a high school kid or a college kid. Yeah, and the, the truth is the truth, right? So the truth is there, but how to sure. navigate that, at, that's what we're talking about. It's just we have to be very careful with that aspect of it. Yeah, that. yeah, and making sure you're yeah. respecting people as you talk about these issues. So uh, They wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. And, uh, and oftentimes what I've discovered is in talking with high school students, I was talking to my neighbor who's 16 and doesn't want to go to church anymore, and to hear him talk about it, he's describing it in the, he's describing not wanting to go to his church and the same reason I don't want to join the country club down the street from my house. For him, he sees it as a society of places where you sing a certain kind of songs, you dress a certain way, you talk a certain way, you believe a certain way, uh, you even chew a certain kind of breath mint. You know, you have a, a very clear sort of... Uh, Clothes. Way, yeah, you have a certain kind of way that you dress. And for him, it's just a country club that he doesn't want to join. And uh, I think, um, and again, these are just observations, and we obviously don't have time to unpack all the ways to, to get out of that. But recognizing that it becomes a reality when a kid who's never been to church or is kind of getting jaded with church comes into the building or comes into the youth room or comes into the environment that we've created and from the word go, he already feels like, you know, the minute the speaker starts talking or the minute that the music starts playing, that 
he feels like this is some sort of a society where he's going to have to spend, you know, four to six weeks kind of learning how it works. And uh, I think that's always something to be careful of, especially as you have more and more kids that are unfamiliar with church or unfamiliar with the Bible or uh, are, are unfamiliar with, with the Christian faith altogether. Or language, so, too. We use word language. Word language? Church. Weird. Weird language. Oh, yes. Yeah, weird language. Give I probably us an did example. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, well, even like words like quiet times. Yeah. Do you realize how weird that is? Yeah. That is such a weird phrase. But we, we know what it means, and it, it's meaningful to us, but do you realize how weird that language is to somebody that's not a Christian or not around church? Yeah. It's just yeah. so odd. Uh, just so many things like that. Yeah. I remember a student coming up to me, and they're going, when did Jesus die again? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, he rose from the dead, right? And I was like, yeah. I was like, well, he's not here. I was like, yeah. I was like, so when did he die again? I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Where do we start? You know, the, the, oftentimes their starting point is so different from our starting point. And just always remembering that, as Chuck is saying, they don't have um, the, the key card to know what all the language means. And um, oftentimes they feel really lost in it all. So um, I think those are really important observations as you think through um, how do you help get a group of high school students uh, or 18-year-olds from 18 um, to 20 to, to 30 still engaged with their faith, that, that these are often tripwires um, as they wrestle with faith and uh, for us to begin to create environments where obviously we can't break down all of our models of church and there's certain things that we can't change. Obviously the truth is the truth, as Chuck said, and there's certain things that are going to be offensive, but at the same time, how do we posture ourselves and at least be aware of what some of the tripwires for the next generation um, actually is? So, um, Church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. Um, I think this is a really important issue uh, that if you can create environments of doubt um, and beginning to see that, that for a student who wrestles with their faith or has questions about you know, whether it's creationism or um, what happens to somebody when they die, that they're allowed to ask those questions, that they're not suffocated with superficial certainty uh, the moment they, that they ask them, that they're not just automatically given a, a very cognitively rigid answer and say, here's sort of what, what what you're supposed to believe about that, that um, doubt and faith are not enemies, um, that it's possible. Actually, they, they, they get along quite well, um, that to have faith, uh, you have to wrestle with it and you have to ask questions and creating volunteers and, and environments where they're allowed to do that. sitting here in the Think Orange bunker with my good friend, Steve. Thank you so much hey, for joining actually, us. So glad to be with you. I this have place been looking is awesome. forward to this. Me too. So let's talk. Let's just jump right in. Let's yeah. talk young adults. Yeah. But before I ask you a million questions about it, yeah. I, can we define what you mean by young adults? Actually, that's such a great question because we kind of throw around this idea of young adult all the time. And I think the older you get, young adult actually could be a lot of things to a lot of right. people. But I think what we're finding in ministry conversations that we're having, that when we talk about young adults, we're sort of thinking about the post-high school age. And people give them all sorts of, of names, young adult, millennial. 
millennial. We sort of see this other terminology, Gen Z, coming、mm-hmm. about. So it's sort of a name that's given to a lot of different、uh, types of、uh, of terminologies, I suppose.、Uh, another way that it's talked about, and it's more in academic circles, but it's being used more and more, and it's a developmental phrase, is this idea of emerging adulthood as、yes. well. And so emerging adulthood is really ages eighteen up to about twenty nine. Okay. So we're really talking about those in their twenties, those that are sort of thinking about life after high school, and that's just a really interesting period, especially in the cultures and context of which we're doing a lot of our ministry in、that's、the West.、Awesome. So you're saying I'm an adult is basically what you're saying. Well, by the way you, you define that. Thank you so much. So you know, and that's actually a really <laughs> funny thing you should say because I think a lot of times what we do is we think that we're supposed to name who's an adult or who's a young adult or who's an adolescent. And I think, especially when we get beyond adolescence, I think we have to be really, really careful and say, you know what?、Uh, it's the job of the individual to name who they are. Yeah. You can tell me you're an adult, <laughs> but I won't tell you you're an adult、Got、because、it. I think there's a sensitivity to that, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think it helps us have more compassion and empathy as we think about the trajectories that young people are on. Right. I love that.、Mm. That's that's great. That's a great、uh, jumping-off point. Yes.、Um, so. I don't know if I would refer to myself as an emerging adult、sure. anymore because I feel like I'm I've reached adulthood. Yeah. Um. Well, at least like my age and like appearance, but my heart、yeah. is still in middle school,、sure. obviously. Oh yeah. But I would say when I was 18, things were a little different than. They are for an 18-year-old today.、Right. So, how, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think just that you say that just shows your sensitivity. I think that we just need to recognize the fact that、uh, when you and I were 18, it is different than our 18-plus、uh, young people、uh, today. And what's funny is this: is I think a lot of adults,、um, because we remember our Post high school years, whether that's college or work, whether uh, uh, we think about our twenties as these significant times where we maybe discover our career,、mm-hmm. or we find the love of our life, or we have this moment where we discover who we are. The twenties are a really significant time, and so as older adults, we remember this space probably more than we do high school or middle school or of course、sense. grade school, right? So it's for more familiar to us.、Uh, the downside is this: is that we also only. Remember Remember the good parts. Like we're always like, oh my gosh, you know, the twenties were great, but we don't remember the anxiety. Or like, oh, I found the love of my life. Yeah, but you, what about the breakup? Right. right. We, we are very selective in our memories,、uh, which makes that difficult、uh, as well. And so what happens is, is that adults use a phrase with young adults that young adults really don't like, and they will start it with this. They'll say, "When I was your age,"、uh-huh. okay. Now we think. Uh, that that's a bridge builder, but it actually turns into a barrier because what a young person is thinking, an emerging adult is thinking, is、uh, when. When you were my age, there weren't cell phones. When、right. you were my age, there was no internet. When you were my age, things looked different politically,、uh, globally,、mm-hmm. economically, relationally, even spiritually. Right. So when we use that phrase, I think it it distances us from、um, the young person to truly understand where they're coming from. Now, I, I know that most adults don't mean anything mean spirited by it. Yeah. But it 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 builds that. And so what I try to tell、um, older adults is I say, you know, there's a better phrase. Than when I was your age, and actually, it's something that、uh, my wife Jen and I we actually had a, a, a piece of art in our family room, and the art uh, had uh, three words on it, and it said, "Tell me more."、Ooh. And the idea was is that when our daughters would come home and they would explain something that's going on, we would hold our tongue, and instead of saying, "Well, when I was your、mm-hmm. age, this is what we did." We stopped and said, "Well, tell me more about that.、Mm-hmm. Tell me what your experience is like. Tell me what's going on." And so, if we lead with empathy, 
What we do is we give ourselves a chance to understand where our 18 to 29-year-olds are rather than prescribing what we think uh, that they are. And Mm -hmm. that really moves us in a a better direction. And I would propose that what we see a lot of times uh, as problems in the church today is we've got older adults that are guessing or wanting to reinvent their experiences with young people, and they're creating programs and making assumptions about them that really border on negative critique and not very uh, much help to them as well. And so I just think there's a better way. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's really, really insightful. So I guess what I keep thinking about is, you know, being in youth ministry, you're often thinking about like 18, like grade 12 is the finish line in some ways. It's like get them through middle school, children's ministry, middle school, high school. Right. And then it's like, it feels like a lot of times the young adult ministries and churches are, are like question marks, like People yeah. are still trying to figure this out, yeah. right? So if if our culture says that an adult is an adult at 18, yeah. and we're t- calling emerging adults, let's say, through 29, yeah. uh, where are we missing it? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a great question. And so he, here's one of the ways I think about it. And I, I think about it like a, a metaphor, and it's something that I've tested on other people, and I think they like it. So uh, in some time in our lives, we've probably had the define the relationship mm-hmm. experience, the DTR, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the DTR is really, really important because if you start, say, dating someone, you get to this point where you start asking this question, uh, who are we together? Mm-hmm. What can I expect of you? What can you expect of me? Is this thing going forward or is is it not, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the DTR, what happens is that the relationship kind of just dissolves. Mm-hmm. Here's what I think. I think that in a lot of, especially evangelical churches, but in a lot of churches in the West, I think Mm -hmm. what we find is that we've got a great relationship defined with our kids. As a child, I know I go to my Sunday school class, there's a teacher there that loves me, I get a snack, and then I leave, and that's my relationship with the church. Middle school and high school, I go to a gathering, I may have a small group leader that loves me and cares for me, I know my connection with the church. But here's what happens. After 18, just like you said, all bets are off, the experiences of emerging adults are different, And you have a situation where there's no DTR. Mm -hmm. And so we have churches saying, why don't you hang out with us? And we have emerging adults saying, who are we together? What can I expect of you? And what do you expect of Mm -hmm. me? And I really believe that we hear this mantra of young people leaving the church or emerging adults Mm -hmm. leaving the church. I don't think if we are going to assume for a second that they're leaving, that they're leaving out of protest as much as they're leaving out of ambiguity. Mm. So if that's the case, we have some important questions to ask about what does this define the relationship look like? Who are we together? And the problem is, is that because we've been so coupled with marriage status a lot of times at the church, those in their 20s don't know what to do other than, I guess, join the singles ministry or the church holds its breath until the person gets married because that's sort of the the subtext, right? Like you're not a real person until you're married. Uh, Then you get back in the system because now you're back in children's ministry again. You see this? So, um, So with emerging adulthood being something that's an extension where young people are getting married later if they get married, and it takes them longer to grow up because it's harder to prepare for a world that's much more complex than the worlds that we came from. We've not done a good job of recognizing that this third decade in life is unique and beautiful and mm-hmm. challenging and different than probably any other time in a human being's life. And 
I think the church is sort of missing it. I think the DTR mm-hmm. is, is part of um, maybe getting uh, to, to that point. So what would having a DTR look like? Can you give me an example? Yeah, so I think what happens a lot of times is churches are like, hey, we really want you to be part of our church, subtext, because when you're with us, you feel cooler. <laughs> our like average age, age goes right? Down. <laughs> right, right. Um, but this is what we do is we say, hey, we have these programs and we want you to join them. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is a lot of emerging adults are going, I don't want to join a program that you haven't really talked to me about. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of attendance and you're going to judge me on whether I show up at church or this group. Uh, rather than asking me, well, what are you interested in? What are you passionate about? What, mm-hmm. uh, where in your life are you moving right now? And um, and they're asking deeper questions of vocation. Mm-hmm. Well, what does someone that's seeking their vocation need? They need a mentor. Right. Uh, they're thinking about relationships, and they're asking, well, where do I find community after I graduate? Say, if I go to college or high school, and I don't have that built-in community anymore. That right. the transition, especially out of college for a lot of college students is one of the hardest transitions for a person because they don't have, if they're on campus, this on-campus experience or Mm -hmm. this gathered experience anymore. Especially with all the online school. Exactly, right. So you have this unique time where they're asking some deep and profound questions, which I would say are the good news questions that they really are looking for. And the church is missing answering those questions. So I think part of it is to the church, a lot of times sitting down with emerging adults and talking about their lives and not asking what program do you want, but saying, what's good news to you? Where are the gaps? Where, where do you need, uh, where do you need help? The the other problem is, is I'll I'll say one more thing about this is I also think we're missing it in this way. I believe that as we think about the developmental trajectory of uh, spiritual formation in our, in our young, and you think about this as you work with middle schoolers, mm-hmm. which is really, really important, there's an age appropriateness to the work that you do and the way that you talk about theology and the way 100%. that you gather them, right? I mean, you don't expect them to be high school when they're middle school, and you right. don't expect them to be grade school either. Mm-hmm. There's, there's an age appropriateness associated with that. What I find a lot of times happens in churches is that once we go post-18, what a lot of churches want to do is have a program with a speaker and some music and some small groups. Now, tell me what that is. That is middle school and high school ministry all over again. Now, let's go back to the DTR for That's a second. True. We are oftentimes asking emerging adults to relate to the church like they did when they were teenagers rather than emerging adults. And so if we redefine this relationship, we have to ask some really hard questions about the programming that we do for those in their 20s. Now, I'm not saying all programming is bad, but I guess what I'd say to our friends out there is this, is that if people are telling you to do a college-age ministry, do not do it unless you absolutely believe that that is the only way that you can truly serve, say, your emerging adults in your community. Because once you start that program, you'll never be able to stop it. But I worry that you will perpetuate a youth group mentality rather than a formational mentality. And then what happens is, is we no longer have formation forward, which is what we try to do developmentally. Right. And we actually have formation backward. Okay. Ooh. So now we're talking. Now this is, this is what we this really have to think awesome about. This is awesome stuff. Yeah. Keep, so, keep going. Keep yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll just stop there for a second. So come back to me. What, what, what do you want? Oh you my want gosh, to go I here? have so many questions. Good. Um, I... Well, the most recent one that just popped in my head when you were talking was, so if 
if what's developmentally appropriate for a middle and high school student is, yeah. you know, a speaker, some music, small groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would you say maybe as a suggestion? And I know this is probably different in different yeah. regions and depends on the actual age range yeah. of the group. Yeah. But what have you seen work? Yeah, I think oh, that's so good. Okay, so he, l let me back up and we'll, we'll come at this in a different way. And, you know, right now I'm a seminary professor, but in my former life I've been a pastor and I've worked with emerging adults and those that are that are younger. So I, I think about uh, this a, a lot. And, you know, what I find interesting is, is this, is I think we have to ask hard questions about where emerging adults make sense of the world. Chances are it's not at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning in a room with pews where there's one speaker up front and we are supposed to listen dutifully, right? Right. But this is the metric by which we determine whether one is spiritual or not, mm -hmm. right? Young people are leaving the church, right? Yeah. I did air quotes on that for those of you that are listening online. <laughs> um, so, um, so we began uh, in uh, the church community that I was part of to begin to say, well, where, where do emerging adults make meaning? And they, we said, well, they make meaning over film. What if we were to partner with the local theater and we pick certain movies that we uh, invite emerging adults together and we watch the film and then we talk about the film? But what you know happens is the, we don't talk about the film; we talk about our lives, right? Right. Uh, what if um, we they made uh, meaning through music and we created venues where we would invite certain bands that um, emerging adults feel a kindred spirit with and we. Um, have a short concert, but then we dialogue with them about the way that um, they think about creativity and about how they try to articulate the message and life experiences that the band has. I mean, right. what can we do with things like that? Um, how do we think about working with emerging adults where if vocation is important that we, if they're in business and they're asking questions like, how do I follow Jesus into the business world? Well, who are the people that have done business for a while that can give uh, advice? So, right. where are those ways to sort of connect on, on those levels that Make I think practical go, uh, for them. deeper? And then the other thing we do, we had something called a grassroots campaign where I think a lot of times we're always asking emerging adults to kind of join the the mothership and, you know, here's our vision, join our vision. And I'm not saying that vision's bad. It actually right, is really, really great. But I think with grassroots, I think we ask the question, where do you see hurting in the world and what are you going to do to solve it? Mm. Now, as a church, we've got resources and smart people that can probably help them raise money and put business plans together. And what we saw happen with um, our particular church is some of the grassroots ideas actually turned into ministries of our church. Mm -hmm. Now, notice the flow there. The church didn't say, we've got this ministry, join it. We said, where is hurting in the world? Develop it and we will follow you into that, mm. right? Now, don't tell me that there would not be a line of 20-somethings out the door if I say to them, I've got money and I've got experts. What's your idea? Let's fund it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's good news to emerging adults. And I think the problem is, huh, we've confused the gospel with good news. And I don't think that the gospel we proclaim to emerging adults is actually good news, which is ironic because gospel means right. good news, right? Right. right? So, what, so what is do you mean good by that? news? Well, I, I think we have to go back to these type of things and ask that question. What's good news to a 23-year-old single woman who just graduated, is in the middle of her master's degree and is feeling deeply alone? What's good news to her? I know the theological implications, but what's good news to a 26-year-old guy that thought he found the love of his life and he had a major breakup and right. now he's back to, to zero again? What's good news to a um, first-generation college student? What's good news to someone that just moved into town after being in this amazing community in college and now they took this job because they thought 
God called them to it, and now they feel incredibly alone. Mm-hmm. These are the deep and profound questions that emerging adults need help and support in, uh, more than um, berating them about whether or not they show up at church or not on yeah, Sunday, of right? Um, and I know that the spirit is never to berate. But the reality is, is that I think we're we're rather insensitive to that. And um, I do a lot of work with really thinking about uh, emerging adulthood, um, spiritual quest, and also spiritual struggle. And a lot of my research bubbles up to this fact that emerging adults are really vulnerable right mm. now. They're in this in-between time trying to make sense of their world, leaving maybe some of the familiar uh, aspects of maybe what they've been taught, trying to make sense of their own life and belief and spirituality. Yeah. It's and like they this, return to middle school a, a little all bit, over again in the, some ways. But the stakes are higher. Yes. Right? Oh, because, of course. Right? There, there's consequences. Yeah. And, <laughs> and what's the message that they hear from the church? Why'd you leave us? Yeah. You must not love God. Why don't you get your act together? Mm. See how the insult adds to the injury. You know, of so um, so I, again, I you know I'm I'm leaning hard on this empathetic uh, space, but I think uh, even good intentions can still be painful, and I think there's a sensitivity that we need to think about. You know, that. this is this conversation is answering a ton of questions I've had. As I've watched a lot of me personally, like I I wasn't part of like a necessarily a, a solid young adult emerging adult ministry yeah. um, when I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. um, or even you know eighteen and up. But I've watched a lot of churches launch them, and then they crash, and then they try to launch something, and then it crashes, and then yeah. they launch. So when you were saying, like, instead of like launching a program and say, "Come to me," yeah. and come to our program, right. like get involved, I was actually reading a really interesting article about marketing to Gen Z, uh-huh. and how it was years ago. It was about people being loyal to a brand yeah. and to uh, uh, whether it's a ministry or a, or a group of people. Yeah. And it flipped somewhere where now it's about the brand being loyal to them. Mm, yeah. And so it actually reminds me exactly right. of what you just said about like, stop trying to lo- launch a program without talking to them about like what is the actual need in their life Absolutely, and, and be loyal to investing in them as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're dead on. And I, I think, I think if we have that sort of mentality and posture, I think it's, I think it can be beautiful. Now here's the risk though. Right. Okay. So it sounds great. Right? Tell me I all mean, the risks. We're having a little kumbaya moment right now. We're <laughs> like, yeah, young people, we can do it. Here's the deal is that if we really are serious about taking this empathetic posture it's going to cost us something. Um, in the research that the Fuller Youth Institute has done, we uh, wrote a book. Uh, my colleagues wrote a book called "Growing Young." One of the key, uh, one of the six characteristics that young people, young adults, really feel um, is helpful to them is this idea of what we would call keychain leadership. And it's this idea of, you know, we give the keys of like the car or whatever to younger leaders for them to develop their gifts and, and everything, which we all think is really, really great. But he, here's the way I think about that. I think older leaders sort of think about giving the keys kind of like to church leadership, kind of like they're giving the keys to the church SUV, okay? It's beautiful, it's big, the thing cruises, it's got all the bells and whistles, it's really, really great, right? And they're like, here are the keys, you can drive it. But what the older adult is thinking is this, and I want you to drive it carefully, just like I drove Do. it. And yeah. if you drive it any other way, I'm going to have a problem with it. Whew. But here's what the emerging adult wants to do. They want to take the keys, 
put them in the ignition, drive the SUV to the dealership, sell it, and buy 200 bikes with it because it will serve more people and be more environmentally appropriate and contextual than the SUV. <laughs> now we're talking because now the emerging, now the uh, senior adult is going, am I okay with that? Yeah. Am I okay with actually uprooting the whole thing that we built to serve the next generation? I love that. And let me tell you something. This is where it's no longer about empathy. It's about power. And there are leaders both um, in staff and also in the church that will not give up that power. Why? Because a generation before them didn't give up the power, so they have the power. So you have systemic dysfunction. Right. So I'm asking the question, who will go first? Mm. Who will serve the younger generation first? Because if we serve the younger generation first, they're going to go, I was served, so I will serve. So now there will be systemic health, right? That's good. But... Power is addicting, and we lace it with spirituality, and it is a crazy cocktail. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've done a lot of self-reflecting on myself. Like, what does it mean to give up power? What does it mean to let things um, go or do things in a different sort of way? Am I okay with that? Why, why do I have um, apprehension at times? Is it truly theological, or is it more about me, right. about my preferences, mm -hmm. uh, than anything else? And here's the other thing I'd say about that, is I think a lot of times older leaders are like, well, I'll, I'll meet an emerging adult halfway. To that, I'd say, the incarnation informs me that Jesus came all the way. Certainly, an emerging adult needs to learn to take responsibility for themselves, and they have to begin to have their own agency and make sacrifices themselves, which we can talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. However, I think that older adults need to recognize the fact that they're in the secure position to actually come all the way. And again, that's modeling, I think, what Jesus shows us in the incarnation. Jesus didn't say come halfway. Right. I mean, all the way. So let's just go all the way toward each other, right? Because that's much more beautiful and much more Jesus-like in my estimation. Of course, and and learn e like, learn from each other equally. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what's, in your opinion, the role of a parent? in this space, like 18 to 29? That is a great question. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Well, um, we're so excited to have uh, Kara Powell and I, uh, my colleague, to uh, reflect on that in, in the Phases Project. So we did an 18 plus uh, reflection on that. But I, I think what's interesting is this, is I'm discovering as I, um, as I work with parents that if emerging adulthood is new territory for emerging adults, uh, it's also new territory for parents mm -hmm. because, like you said, I think a lot of parents have it in their mind, like, 18, we did it. We right. made it. We right. parented, you know? Uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they're like, wait a minute, my kid doesn't want to go to college or they're or move, they're out. move out <laughs> or they move back yeah. or um, they're making choices that I'm not sure about or they're taking a break or they want a gap year or mm -hmm. um, what? how do I, as a parent, uh, encourage them in their uh, in their calling and what they sense maybe God was doing in their life. And how do I also not enable of course. them to kind of live this, this sort of life? Um, and so I think it's really, really tricky. But I, I do think this, I think that uh, as these questions are raised, I think it allows us as parents, of which I'm one of emerging adults, to, um, to begin to say, okay, so what is our relationship together? What's changing and what's staying the same? Mm-hmm. It's me understanding uh, that one of the tenets for an emerging adult to achieve adulthood is to be financially stable. So one of the reasons that emerging adults may move home is not, in my generation, uh, an adulting fail. It actually is an adulting step for them. Because if I move home, 
I can save money to eventually achieve adulthood. Right. So some of the behaviors of emerging adults need to be reinterpreted by parents to kind of say, well, what's really going on here? Yeah. Now, again, we don't assume their behaviors. I think this is where we enter into these conversations. Um, but I think what we're learning with parents is that we just have to negotiate a whole new set of questions. And what our relationship is with them, how do we give them uh, and honor their autonomy, recognizing the same time that there's a sense of interdependence um, mm-hmm. that we have with them. Uh, what can we learn uh, from each other along the way? And we as parents, here's the key. We as parents have to, uh, as as they grow, our relationship with them grows as well. And so right. actually, we take on different roles as parents as they get older. When they're younger, we're more of a teacher. When, we're, when they're like mid-20s, we're more of a guide. We kind of come alongside. We kind of help them through the technical part. And then when we get to them being in their older 20s, uh, we're much more of a resourcer. We basically I are playing sort of a passive role in letting them come to us. But what happens is, is if I am treating my 20 six-year-old and I'm still a teacher, that's called helicopter parenting, right? right? Because I'm telling them what to do. Or if I'm treating my 20-year-old with complete hands-off, what I'm doing there is I'm sort of abandoning them at a time when they may need this the most. So it's really thinking about that developmental trajectory and what my role is as a parent along the way. That's brilliant. I I know that's hard for parents too, and not because I am a parent, but Mm. I'm 34 years old and I think I see my dad specifically still struggle with like trying to parent his kids who are all in their 30s and just like talk about things and be okay if we look at something different absolutely (laughs) so i i I can imagine the struggle parents feel especially when it's the first time they're doing it it's so true and especially when it comes to spirituality this is where it really gets crazy for our christian parents out there um i developed a habit with my daughters um where when we would go out for coffee, the, the rule was it was never chit-chat. We'd talk about like real things. Right. And so that was really, really fun. Uh, but I have an a ongoing question that I have with them. And the question I ask them is this. I say, tell me something you don't believe anymore that you still think I believe. Ooh. Yeah. Or the other wow. way around. Wait, tell, say that again. Tell me something you don't believe anymore that you still think I believe. Ugh. And then the other way, you could flip it the other way. Tell me something you believe that you don't think I believe. And wow. I hold, I'll be honest with you. I hold my breath in those moments. Oh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> but it's, I want them to know that there's always room for a conversation. Yes. There's always space to talk about these things. And my assumption is at some point, like we all did with our parents, we begin to diverge a little bit because mm-hmm. we're asking different questions. We live in different worlds. When we're born matters, and so it has those effects there as well. Yeah. So, um, But that's a scary place for parents to go, but I think it can be a really beautiful place because it preserves a relationship with our kids, and we actually can learn something from them, right? I mean, which is a really cool thing to think yeah. about. Well, circling back to where we started the conversation, mm. how things now are really different than when we were 18, 25, 28, yeah. and especially for a parent of yeah. someone who's that age, where would you, I mean, every generation has a set of values, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a difference between what's biblical and what's cultural and what's biblical and what's generational. Yeah. And so where would you encourage parents or ministry leaders to go for a resource to start really trying to understand their kids? Rather than, or I'm sorry, to really understand their emerging adult, um, rather than change them. Oh, I just love that you say that. Like, if we can just seek to understand rather than change, I I think that that's a that's a that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I I don't want to sound like a commercial, but I do think that the phase project that Orange is doing is a great way to do that. I think what uh, in a very simple way. 
we can look at where our kids are at. And I think that what parents need more than anything else is just normalcy. Like we all think our kids are crazy. <laughs> and then we realize that, oh, wait, my kid's like your kid. And They're we're normal. sort of all this together. So, you know, I think a, a one resource would just be to really pay attention to those things. And I think those are some simple ways um, to look at it. The other thing I would encourage parents to do of emerging adults is really meet with other parents of emerging adults. I think sometimes when you're together, I think it allows you to normalize some of the experience and sort of navigate um, the uniqueness of each of our kids. And this is the challenge with emerging adults is that we can read up on maybe development or some sort of key uh, elements of emerging adulthood. The problem is, is that each of our kids are unique and they're more unique now in their 20s than they were like at 17. At 17, there's a shared experience generally of school or, you know, rhythm or living at home or whatever. But 23, I mean... You know 23-year-olds that are married and have kids and others that have never been in a relationship, right? right? So, you know, you just, you have this broad range of 23-ness that uh, we have to, to pay attention to and to think about. And then the other so thing good. I'd say this is I would just be really careful of, I mean, there's sort of this um, popularism in some articles out there about... Uh, I like that how, popularism. Yeah, of this is what all millennials are like. Or mille- I'm I mean, so tired of hearing that. Oh I am my a God. millennial. Right, right. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I was speaking of something uh, a while back. I mean, and I, I was made a joke. I'm like, and adults are blaming, uh, you know, emerging adults for the depletion of the avocado supply. Right. <laughs> I actually had someone contact me saying, actually, on NPR, they actually talked about that. Like, like and, so it must be true. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but I'm just kind of going. You know, I, I think. I think there's a lot of language out there of a sort of a rolling of the eyes of emerging adults or of millennials, as, as the popular term is called. And I think we just have to step back and kind of say, who are these emerging adults in front of us? Yeah. My kids, their friends, what does it mean to know them and begin to understand them? And, um, and I think the challenge that we have, especially as parents, is they're not necessarily coming to us because developmentally they're starting to think about more, even more autonomy and they want to do things on their own. I think we just have to say, what does it mean to continue to chase after them, find ways to connect with them, listen to them, and do that work? Because I, I think deep down they really want that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Um, I think everybody who's listening probably feels challenged, whether it's their own kid or the ministry that they're leading or the church that they're leading. Um, you've given us some really awesome gold nuggets to think about and mm. and hopefully understand this generation of emerging adults. So thank you so much Ashley, for your time. Thanks. thanks so much. You know, I'm really grateful for the questions that you raised, and I think this is an important conversation in the church. And maybe if I could say uh, one more thing to, um, to leaders and especially uh, parents out there, uh, emerging adults really need you. I think sometimes you can feel as though um, you're a failure or you wish you could do it over again. Uh, but the reality is is that uh, a lot of research would suggest that the relationships that emerging adults have with their parents actually gets better after high school. Uh, so don't give up on them and don't mm. give up on yourself. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that was such an incredible episode. So incredible that I've actually asked Kevin to come into the bunker and he doesn't have to push his face against the little portal anymore because I wanted to get his take on this. Kevin, man, I was listening to Steve argue talk and what I heard was just such practical tips that help solve a problem that many of the people listening to this audience probably care about but might not see in that students 
potentially, according to research, are going to drop off and step away from their faith once they hit the college years. But this this advice was so practical. Yeah, you know, one of the things that while well, I'm excited about doing this episode when we were thinking about it was the reality that we understand that many of our listeners, this is not their day-to-day job. Yeah. Like, you know, I said, and, and they have a big enough job coordinating the volunteers and all of a sudden they're showing up every week in their ministry. Yeah. But what we, what we thought about was, how painful it is, though, when that student who was so active mm. just two years ago, the junior, yeah. and you hear the stories about what's happening in college. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, but they were so active. I never thought that would happen to them. And the reality is, we're not putting it on you. Please hear that. But we are thinking, we don't want your efforts and your resources to be put and be wasted. Yeah. And, and they're not wasted. We know that there's never waste when you're investing in children and visiting students. But you want to have something that's waiting for them when yeah. they're entering in this phase where we know Statistically speaking, they will fall out. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I also thought this episode was great for parents too, not just leaders, but parents who have kids who are maybe heading into college years themselves. What Steve did was give us some practical tips as well. You know, Kevin, my story is that I've got three high school kids at the moment, and I'm concerned about what's going to happen when the social pressure of college starts to come on. I want to make sure that their faith is strong enough to stand against that. And so that's why I love today's episode as well, because of the practical advice that Steve gave me as a dad. So thank you, Steve. Yeah, and and thanks, Jared and Chuck as well. I mean, those guys have worked with students for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and and I know that you know what they share was very helpful as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about this podcast, Kevin, is people can sit in their car listening to this, and and as you said, they work around the clock, pouring all of their time and energy. And I love that we're able to serve them by giving them experts in the field that they can just listen to and absorb some great wisdom and advice from. I, I, that's why I love this podcast so much. Yeah, indeed. Our vision for this podcast podcast is to make sure we don't just give you content, but give you some context, right? Because that's the reality of ministry. We can give you great ideas and strategies, but it's messy. So we want to help out. Yeah, totally. So, hey, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Why do we want people to do that, Kevin? We say this every single week. Why is that important? It's the algorithm. (laughs) Yeah, no, hey, no, sincerely, folks, uh, Apple Podcasts is like the Google of podcasts. Mm. And so when you leave a review there, it impacts every other place as far as the credibility, the visibility of the podcast. And so yeah. when you lend your voice, you help other leaders discover this podcast in their moment of need. Yeah. And we appreciate that. Yeah. So please go and leave a review that pays a huge return on investment. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And make sure you check out the show notes at thinkorangepodcast.com because right there, we have a bunch of great information that this is what Kevin actually does with the other 167 hours of his week. Indeed. He puts these uh, show notes together, but they're super, super helpful for you to get great extra content beyond what you just heard today. And they're also easy for you to share with a friend as well. Yeah. My favorite part of the show notes that I'm hoping you check out is we actually give you conversation starters. Mm. We understand that if, if you might be convicted of something, but you can't just come and throw this on your team and say, we're doing this today. Yeah. Right. What we can say is, can we start a conversation about this? So I can send the pockets of the entire team and say, hey, guys, we're going to just go through those three questions in our next staff meeting. Yeah, I love that. And, and just start the process of saying, we may not solve it today. We may not solve it in the next year. Yeah. But we're thinking through it, and we're going to start seeing opportunities to improve in an area where maybe we haven't put any thought before. I totally agree. Just for those conversation starters alone, it's worth checking out the show notes at thinkorangepodcast.com. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. We cannot wait to hear from you in the review section of Apple Podcasts, and we hope you'll be around next time as well. And hey, in between this episode, 
episode and next episode. Whenever you think next generation, what do we say, Kevin? Think Orange. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Think Orange podcast. Join us next time for more ideas and conversations to help you influence the next generation. For more episodes and show notes, visit thinkorangepodcast.com. 